Welcome back to the Act Two podcast, a podcast for the real life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I'm Josh Hallman. And Tasha. Yes. I'm going to just cut you off because I'm so <laughs> excited right now. Okay. What it's are like we doing today, Tasha? Josh's life. <laughs> What's happening today? What are we, we doing? We are going to talk about Back to the Future. Yes. The first act. The first act. <laughs> this is going to be a three-part series. We're going to go act by act, talk about why it's such a fucking amazing movie. Yes. And we have, um, not only are we talking about the movie, but we are ta- we have the first draft of the script. So we're going to talk about kind of how the scripts have changed, how some things haven't changed, and just really analyze the first act of Back to the Future because I think it's, uh, as a whole, structurally, Back to the Future is a perfect movie. Perfect. It is my favorite movie. It is tied for one of the most influential movies in my life as number one. So after this, you're getting a Back to the Future tattoo. Another one, yes. <laughs> and also, before we go any further, I want to say, as we've been talking about, we have an unofficial sponsor today for the Act Two podcast. Who's that? It's Casamigos Tequila. I would like to thank Cindy Crawford's husband and Amal Clooney's husband for unofficially sponsoring us for today's uh, podcast episode. Yeah, if you hear clinking of glass, it is ice cubes (laughs) in my drink. This is going to anyway, be a good one. <laughs> this is going to be a great episode. I'm excited. It's it's Friday and we were talking about Back to the Future. I'm so excited because I've seen this movie a million times as I know you've probably seen it two million times. And I still, in going back through Act 1, was learning things. And that is very exciting for me. Yeah, I agree. I feel like when you kind of watch it with a different eye where you're really trying to analyze things and, okay, what what does this do for this, 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 which I've done before, but just doing it again. I mean, it is, it's perfect. And we have a lot to talk about. What makes me happy too, though, about part of this conversation is, as you said, we have the first draft. And what we'll find is that it wasn't always perfect. And that, as a screenwriter, makes me very happy because sometimes you feel like there are just geniuses out in the world who just shit out these perfect scripts. Like, it's nothing. Yeah. And you realize that even these amazing scripts that feel effortless took a lot of work for it to feel so effortless. So I think that's yeah. very helpful for me mentally. Like, you know, when you you read the script and you're like, oh, I can I can do that. Like, this makes sense. This is where it started because it's not perfect. There's, there's problems and it's not like, I don't know. It was just really strange to read the first draft, which I hadn't really done. I'm surprised by that. I think I am too. Well, do we want to just hop right in and just start talking about the amazing opening one shot, which is one of my favorite openers of all time. I clocked it at three minutes and 20 seconds long. Wow. Uh, I was just continually impressed by it. Just all the things that it's able to set up in such a short period of time while also making it feel very fun. So like the shot Mm -hmm. is a one shot that's actually just very expositional, but done in this very fun way, right? You get these Rube Goldberg hide machines. You see that the Brown mansion has been destroyed through a newspaper article. So we kind of slowly pan past that. That's information we don't know what to do with yet as an audience, but it will prove to be important in the second act. 
Um, we find framed pictures of famous inventors. They set up your inventor. How do they do that? Well, first they show you Thomas Edison, Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein. There are framed photos of these guys in this room. Moving past that, then you start to see all of his weird contraptions, like a contraption that turns on the TV or the radio and mm -hmm. um, it starts talking about like a Toyota dealership downtown yep. and it sets up what time period we're in. We're in 1985. There's a coffee pot that goes off with no coffee. That's immediately like you're used to seeing a coffee pot, but suddenly there's no coffee pot in there. Why is that going on? And I think too, like that, the juxtaposition of kind of things you're, you're familiar with, with things that are slightly off forces the audience to pay attention to kind of lean in and start putting pieces together of what the hell are they trying to show me in this one shot, which I think is very cool to keep the audience very active. Um, then you get the toaster with the toast that's coming up and down in this kind of haywire machine, which the toast is burnt. So someone's clearly not here. They're not picking up their toast. Someone's absent from this room. Um, mm -hmm. And then you get like the Einstein's food is just keeps dumping into his dish no, there's no dog here. And then it that one shot closes with Marty coming in. It's just on his feet. He's coming in through the door and he kicks his skateboard, which lands at um, the stolen plutonium that's stuffed under the bed after we've just heard a newscaster talk very organically about a nuclear facility that's missing plutonium. So it's all fucking amazing setup work in this very organic one shot. And I'm just consistently impressed by that. I actually have some beef with this opening oh I'm not so not the intrigued. shot yeah this is probably the only beef i have with the entire movie actually what's your beef we see this genius setup of everything marty comes in plugs his guitar into the biggest subwoofer ever and just black turns it up everything up and then gets shot into the wall and i i guess to this moment i'm kind of curious about like why what's the point of that moment I was thinking the same thing too. It is very jarring in that moment and extremely random to just have, like, why does Doc have this? For what purpose? I guess you can only assume he has this giant speaker or amp or whatever it is um, because he's he's an inventor and it, I don't know, it's related to crazy experiments that he's been doing. But it feels extremely random. But my takeaway in rewatching it this time, particularly when reading it juxtaposed to the original script, which is far more serious, which we'll talk about in mm -hmm. a second, um, was that it ad immediately adds fun and kind of hilarity or levity, I would say, maybe not quite hilarity, but levity to the movie that immediately sets up the tone. I remember watching, of course, as a kid, that's when I first watched it, that immediately set up Marty as a fun guy to me yeah that makes sense but i feel like every other moment in the setup like well, i guess it pays off because it shows that marty has an interest in music and he plays a little loud and i i guess it just it just felt a little out of sorts let's just put it that way and also it, it always surprised me that he was so off on when school started like 20 minutes is a big time to be off. 25 minutes, I think. Well, I mean, that's him. so important to his character is he's very lackadaisical, doesn't seem to have a lot of ambition, as <laughs> the principal later says. So let me ask you a screenwriting uh, question. How much of that that you just described 
is included in the script? Is everything included? Or is it because the movie has the benefit of being written by the director, co-written by the director? It's not in the script. It's the tone of it's in the script. I think they right. say that this is uh, a laboratory that has a bunch of different machines going on and that it's clear no one's been here for a while. Right. They do have a newscaster talking about the stolen plutonium, although it's more mm -hmm. organic in the final movie than it is in the actual script. It's a little bit more on the right. nose in the script. Um, but yeah, they just basically give that small, it's a small paragraph description and the director created from there. Yeah, I find that there's a, there's going to be a few times throughout this that I feel that Zemeckis being the co-writer is a huge benefit to this movie because he, in my opinion, is a genius. I love, he's one of probably my top three to five favorite directors and movies that he's created. Um, well, anyway, we can move on. I'll, I'll touch on some more Zemeckis as we go. I would like you to nerd out about Zemeckis, please, as we yes. go. <laughs> I use um, the man. Yeah, I, and also, uh, so yeah, I guess the next moment is a bunch of close-ups of Marty turning on some kind of machine. And mm -hmm. then I think contextually, you maybe think that it's just some kind of invention of some kind, but then mm -hmm. you reveal that it's a guitar, which again, I think that reveal is part of the fun of the movie, which is what leads to the the giant amp that's kind of ridiculous. There's It's just kind of throwing your expectation and it's saying that you have this crazy scientist who's a bit more serious in Doc Brown and his buddy, Marty, who's using his stuff to make music. Right. <laughs> and I think, yeah. too, like the massive speaker and all of that is just like a kid's dream. So I think that it being so giant is, again, part of like the kid-like kid wish fulfillment that helps make the tone a bit lighter and more, I agree. more fun. Yeah. But it's an interesting detail because it immediately does that. Like, what else could you put in there? There's just something so off kilter about a giant speaker like that 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 immediately sets the stage for for the tone that I, I think that's actually the more I'm talking about, it, I'm actually all for. <laughs> I just you know it's crazy is I feel like I could see this written today and I could see like reading the script and someone saying, like, why is there this giant speaker in this? place with plutonium and why is he being blasted back he's not cleaning up after himself like what the fuck is going on here <laughs> he's not, he just destroyed a whole bookshelf he's not gonna pick that up <laughs> he's like he's okay with this anyway the the greatest setup maybe ever it does everything it sets up so much moving forward and that's something i think going to be a recurring theme in this first act of how amazing the setups and payoffs are uh, yes. throughout the first act. We forgot one of the more important parts of the one shot, which is scanning across all the different clocks as well. Oh, of which course. Immediately sets up that this is a time movie, a movie about yeah. time, which is so great. Yeah. All right. Take us to the next shot. The next shot the next would shot, then by the way? be of course I do. <laughs> of course. I just did you the I just assumed you did. Uh you know I have all of this color coded and outlined right in front of me. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Tasha has this all just mapped out. 
<laughs> I think the I details doing? are important. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. So the next B is then this alarm buzzes, which is like there's like a close up of like a huge fire alarm basically, and it ends up being a phone in the lab that Marty picks up. And the fact that Marty's not freaked out by this alarm and knows that it's a phone tells you how often he's been here, um, as well as all the stuff that's come before. But that's that's a nice moment that that takes you off to kind of the setup relationship here. And on the phone, mm -hmm. of course, it's Doc, and he's kind of crazy. And he's like, meet me at Twin Pines Mall at 115. I've made a major breakthrough and I need your assistance. And this is, there's this idea of like, Marty's like, well, where have you been all week? So Doc's been yeah. missing for a while. Um, and he does warn him not to hook up to the amplifier because it might overload. So there's the fact yeah. that that might be how they answered the note of why is there a giant amplifier in this room? <laughs> it's like, well, we'll just have Doc say, and we'll just assume that it's part of his experiments. You know what I'm really worried about? Right now, I'm worried that I'm going to start picking apart Back to the Future in a very oh, negative no. way that I've never, ever dreamt of doing because I feel like there has to be at least some kind of push to Back to the Future. And this, by the way, one more time, my favorite movie. Anyway. And I don't think that's hyperbole, right? Like, it literally is your favorite movie. Yeah. That's, this is it. <laughs> I, if this is it, I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> So we get the call from Doc, 1.15 a.m. He says it twice, just so that the audience doesn't forget. It's 1.15 a.m. at the Twin Pines Mall. And then all the clocks in the room go off at the same time. And yes. it's very cool because there's something about that that happens from, there's a reaction that happens from both characters. One is Doc being like, oh, those are my clocks? Great, my experiment worked. You know, the clocks are 25 minutes uh, ahead. Um, right. Uh, or which behind. which by the way like what's the experiment i don't know he, time travels entire apartment <laughs> i don't know i that's what i was questioning when i was watching it and i realized i'd never questioned that before i was just like yeah Me some either. experiment oh no okay. you're gonna hate this movie by the end of this three. <laughs> this <laughs> three used to be series. my favorite movie yeah <laughs> All right, so clocks are 25 minutes slow, and Doc has his reaction of like, yeah, my experiment worked. And then, of course, Marty has his fuck, I'm late for school moment. And then, mm -hmm. like, cue epic intro music. So that is that is wait, wait, our wait. opening. Not not cue epic intro music. Cue Huey Lewis. <laughs> not You just don't gloss over Huey Lewis. All right, yes, that is our opening. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> Do you want to talk about what the opening of the first draft of this movie was, as opposed to that? We have to. Well, why don't you go ahead? Because I feel like you'll explain it better than I will. <laughs> did you it's do your spaceship. homework, Josh? <laughs> I did. All right. So it opens on Close Encounters of the Third Kind is what it opens on. But it turns out to be a bootleg video that Marty is uh, recording. Is that right? Yeah, he's pirating. He's movies. pirating. There we go. He's pirating movies. Close Encounters is one of them. In the background, you see that he's also pirated Star Wars and Superman, like all the big movies of the time. And by the way, it should be said, this first draft, the date on it is February of 1981. The movie mm -hmm. started production in November of 1984. So that's the gap from this yeah. script to production. So yeah, he's yeah. pirating movies 
And he's described in the script as a good-looking kid who has an air of confidence, just shy mm -hmm. of cockiness. He's wearing a silver Porsche jacket. And like most typical modern-day kids, not a stitch of his clothing is without some brand name or form of advertisement. He's looking at an ad for a guitar amp in Rolling Stone. Yes. Now, the description of Marty in the pro production draft is he's a high school kid wearing jeans and a jean jacket. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine the Marty McFly we know and love wearing a silver Porsche jacket that's just outfitted with brand <clears throat> names? I don't think so. I don't think I can now that I'm thinking about it. So what's interesting about the setup in the script, the original draft, is that Doc Brown's a bit different. Mm -hmm. He's like this rundown guy who's helping Marty pirate these videos. And he's like, he seems like he's on his last dollar, right? Yeah, he's on his last dollar. And he's also mid-experiment. So when we meet him oh, right. in this, in the opener of the original draft, he hasn't quite figured out time travel yet. He's one piece away, which is figuring out how to power the thing. That's right. And Marty kind of couldn't really care less. He's all into, Doc, like your experiments are helping me sell these bootleg videos. And that's all we need is keep this cash flowing, baby. And there is one door in the garage or wherever it is that they're working that is always locked. And Marty's always trying to get in there. And Doc is kind of a little bit mysterious about what's behind that door. And we know, of course, because we have perspective that it's probably yeah. his time machine that he's working on. But yeah, Doc is very different in this draft. Yeah. And of course, I'm not the first one to say this, but, every, you know, the what is Doc Marty relationship doesn't really get answered in Back to the Future. And I'm sure that would have to be answered in a current day script because of the age difference and hmm. activity and, and everything. But one thing that I was going to, oh, one thing I was going to say about both openings is they both are very, you know, in the original draft in the actual movie, there's a lot of reference to time and clocks. And I, they were so aware of that and putting that in and that never left the draft. Or that never left the movie, I mean. Yeah, they're very there. careful about keeping that thematic, visual thematic. Yeah. I think one thing that I noticed also in this opener of the original draft is how much Doc Brown has this kind of monologue conversation about time, just kind of generally philosophizing about time. And mm -hmm. it's interesting because it's not advancing the plot or really character at all. It's just a lot of exposition about what Doc thinks about time. And as you'll see as we keep going down through the movie, there actually aren't a lot of scenes of people just talking. What's yeah. more interesting is not what they're saying, but what they're doing. And in this first draft, it's that's flopped, where it's what's being said that's supposed to be more interesting than what's being done. And I'm very much a proponent of what they ended up doing in the movie, which is always have something going on in the background that characters are engaging in that helps make exposition feel less like exposition. So when we go through it, I think it'll be fun to kind of see how they ended up pulling that off. Yeah. All right. Let's keep going. Let's All keep right. moving in the, in the movie. Okay. So Marty then kicks his skateboard down on the cement, on the pavement. He hops on the back of a Ford truck and he drives through Hill Valley, or he rides through Hill Valley, rather. And 
this is obviously, we're only talking about the first act, but this is a huge setup to what happens in the second act when he fights off Biff and all of his guys. But also when he's going through town, we kind of establish Marty's character as like, I don't want to say someone who skates by, but just, Pun you know, intended? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pun intended. Uh, but like women in those aerobic classes are waving at him and he just seems like he is a very loved character throughout town. He's Marty. Loved by ladies, but he's on the back of that truck and the dude driving it looks back and sees him and is like, oh, fucking punk kid. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's just how it was in the 80s. Fucking punks on skateboards. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a uh, devil make hair attitude to Marty and that you get immediately from the fact that he hitches rides off of these trucks. Yeah. Steals and he's rides. great. And then he drives past the um, the cafe that he later goes into before he heads up to school. Mm -hmm. And it's now an exercise studio. He even passes a van with the campaign posters that oh, right. are in foreground. So you're forced to notice it, but you're not, there's no real comment on it at all at this point. Mm -hmm. And then he goes to school and his presumably girlfriend, Jennifer, kind of mm -hmm. for some reason knows Marty's there, even though they don't have cell phones at this point, um, and mm -hmm. meets him <laughs> outside on the steps and is like, don't go through there. We have to go through a different entrance because Strickler, who I think is the principal. Is it ever said St who he is? It's Strickland. Strickland and yes, Strickland. he definitely is the principal. Okay. In the original yeah. draft, they just call him a disciplinarian. Which yeah. I don't ever remember having disciplinarians in my school, like whose job is solely to discipline people. Well, you weren't in school but in the eighties. In high school in the eighties, yeah. uh, <laughs> so Strickland finds them anyways and gives them both tardy slips, and it's four in a row for Marty, and yeah. which obviously tells you this is a habit of his, which mm -hmm. continues this theme that we've been seeing already from when he blew the amp, and. Uh, Strickland warns him because he hears Marty talking about Doc Brown being the reason why he's late, warns him that Doc Brown is dangerous and yeah. tells him you're a slacker, just like your father, who is a slacker when he went here. He insults Marty's band and he says, you're so much like you're too much like your old man and no McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley, which is like the greatest fucking setup of act two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's amazing. Because he, he's like, history's about to change. Yes! It's so good! <laughs> it's fucking awesome. They just keep reinforcing what's about to happen in the movie. And we're none the wiser. We're just we just like, yeah, history's going to change because his band is going to win. That's why history's going to change. Yeah. I feel like... you. I think you said this earlier and something you messaged me, but like... The 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 nuance of the dialogue is so amazing. Like they're they're like you just said, you think we're, we think he's talking about his band, mm -hmm. but actually history is about to change in the movie, mm -hmm. and it's just so brilliant how that is done without being on the nose. No, it's so good. But arguably, it could be called on the nose, depending on the reader. You know why I feel like it doesn't come off as on the nose is because it's so steeped in character in that moment that mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like he, he is speaking to something that's about to happen in the future. It, like Marty 
Marty is being accosted by someone who is threatening the very thing that he believes in most, which is his music and being somebody. And that's how he's reacting. So you're, you're on that ride. You're never, you're never at all stepping outside being like, yeah, what he's referring to is just foreshadow, which I feel right. like in poorly written scripts, you can tell when there's foreshadowing because it's not as steeped in character as this is. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> I win that round. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So history's about to change. We cut to Marty again, rocking out to some Huey Lewis. What the fuck did Huey Lewis do to get in this movie as much as he is? Who knows? I don't know. But uh, so Marty's rocking out at this. What is it? It's a talent competition. Yeah, it's the battle of the bands. So whoever yeah, wins there, there gets we- to play in the dance the upcoming dance right which again is incredible that he gets thrown off of this and then he plays later but yeah so you know huey lewis and the judges listen they're like you're just too damn loud marty's crushed jennifer's watching off to the side it's like this very low point where he just failed in front of his girlfriend what a loser like his dad which also by the way i to me when that scene came up and it was after receiving your text, I think, about the giant amp. I was like, well, now it kind of makes sense. Because, <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's about him playing too darn loud. So thematically, it all works. Oh, shit. It does all work. I also love how we, like, live texted exactly <laughs> what we were going to talk about here. I'm excited. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was very exciting. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, Marty is heartbroken and he goes outside he's walking across the parking lot we've seen the town before so it's that same parking lot and you hear off to the side re-elect mayor goldie wilson progress is his middle name so that's just that's just an audio thing you're flagging not a lot of attention is paid to it but it's there Right. So Marty and Jennifer are walking through the parking lot and Marty's doubting his abilities. He's saying, maybe I'm not cut out for music. Jennifer kind of encourages him and sent, like, to send his audition tape to the record company. Marty at this point checks out two exercise girls, which Jennifer kind of thinks is funny. Yeah. And what as, a time. as Tasha now, I flagged it back then. It was just like, yeah. It was like a cute well, moment. You want to hear what's funny? What I flagged? on as as josh now the disrespect of marty just kissing jennifer in front of her father (laughs) (laughs) i would have gotten out of my car and been like dude no you don't kiss my daughter like that they're dating so much that they love each other she writes i love you this is interesting because marty doesn't really give a wave to the dad like he doesn't even acknowledge the father that's true he's kind of a dick to the dad yeah he, he's almost like, like not, he's just it's, it's that look where it's like hey man there's nothing you can do about me dating your daughter so don't even try i totally didn't pick up on that which dad dad josh i get that you to- totally did <laughs> fuck this movie <laughs> <laughs> what have you done man well, I felt that way about him checking out the girls because this is your hero and he's like with the girl he supposedly <laughs> loves and he's so distracted. She like, she's encouraging him to follow his dream and he can't even grace her with his attention that he like is distracted by two butts. 
So yeah. that's it's a little character setup for you. Yeah, I mean, not a pro. I don't I have no problem with that whatsoever. <laughs> I feel like I'm gonna have to walk back my statement a little bit about checking out the girls because I just remembered <laughs> that the line that he gives when he's doing that, when he's distracted and checks them out, is he says, "If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything." That's something that Doc told him. He's like, mm-hmm. it's like Doc's always saying, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. And then he looks away, distracted by the hot girls. So that, like, the fact that you're distracting him while he's telling you that Doc gave him advice to put his mind, you know, to, to focus. And if he focused, he could do anything is like kind of the greatest character moment, really. Another great moment. Another great moment that could have could have gone badly, I guess. I want to say something like, in the background on the theater in that scene we're talking about, there is mm-hmm. a a porn. I think it's a it's called uh, Orgy American Style. Yeah. Unless there's some kind of cinematic masterpiece that I missed out there that uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's a porn. And what's weird is that in the original draft, at one point, Marty is selling pornos. Like when he's bootlegging and pirating tapes, it ends up being a porno. So I, I don't. I'm not making any assumptions about Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis, but um, well, in the just something I noticed. I think in the production draft, it's it specifically calls it something like "wet hot teenagers." Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> I think that's the title of the movie, and then it was changed to a more <laughs> euphemistic oh, orgy. My God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think, too, something that's really awesome and set up is some of the dialogue that's going on here as Marty's doubting himself, where he's like, what if I send in the tape and they don't yeah. like it? What if they say I'm no good? Get out of here, kid. You have no future. And then he says, I just don't think I can take that kind of rejection. Right. And then he even says, Jesus, I'm starting to sound like my dad, which, as you know, his dad literally says this line in act two of the movie which is incredible setup. Awesome. And then we get very easily, Jennifer's like, well, your dad's not so bad. At least he's letting you take the car tomorrow night, which is going to, again, pay off. None of this dialogue Mm -hmm. is fat, by the way, in case you haven't noticed. It's all purposeful, but all feels very natural. Um, In the background, as they're having this conversation, we see a woman handing out posters talking about save the clock tower, as you were saying. Mm -hmm. Marty's distracted again by this truck that's really awesome. And someday he wants that truck to go to the lake with Jennifer. Cool right. dude stuff. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's a nice truck. <laughs> it's a nice moment. Nice moment. Um, and then he, they start talking about his mom. Where she's, Jennifer's like, well, does your mom know that we're right. hanging out tomorrow night? And that's when we get some interesting backstory about mom that she – lectures him all the time about oh when i was a kid i never did that kind of stuff and he jokes that his mom was born a nun which of course sets up the future and is that this moment in the movie that i actually kind of wondered if the premise that started this whole thing was bob and bob being like i wonder what our parents were like when we were kids like, what were they really like? They tell us that they're this, they were this kind of kid, but I bet they weren't. I bet they were more like us. And then writing a movie around just that random idea while you're having drinks. Well, according to Bob Gale, um, since you asked, by Go the way, on. Uh, 
I had once read that he was very similar to that. He was looking through a yearbook. And I think that he saw that his dad was like voted most likely to be something or whatever the case. And that then started getting the wheels turning of, oh, what was my dad like in high school? What would it be like to meet my parents in high school? So I, I don't think you're that far off. Interesting. Well, what I like about that is it wasn't like I set out to write a time travel movie. Let me reverse engineer how to do a time travel movie. It was, right. I want to know what it was like to meet my parents back then. And then yeah. building a movie around that, which I think makes for less heartache when you actually start outlining <laughs> and structuring something. Yeah. As you and I have both found out, because we both come at it from the other direction for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just want to write a fantasy movie. <laughs> fantasy meets John Fan- Wick. Why can't I do that? <laughs> fantasy time travel with John Wick. <laughs> okay. Let's reverse Moving this. on. All right. Okay. So then you have this whole sequence where they're like trying to kiss and it gets oh, yeah. cock blocked in some way. The first mm-hmm. way is through save the clock tower. That woman gets right in their face and tells them the whole story very briefly, but tells them the whole story of how 30 years ago, lightning struck this tower and it hasn't run since. And he just gives her money to get her the hell out of his face. And he, she gives Marty a flyer and he's like, okay, great. Thanks. Get the hell out. They're interrupted again. I forget what the second time is, but then they're interrupted a third time by Jennifer's dad, which we know how Josh feels about that. Um, And then there's a reason why he has to keep this flyer because this flyer is important. He doesn't give a shit about it right now in Act 1, but it's going to prove vital to how he returns home in Act 3. And the way that they get him to keep it is that Jennifer is going to her grandma's tonight and Marty doesn't have the number to reach her. So she gives him that number and writes it on the back of the flyer. So now Marty is forced to keep this thing and put it in his pocket. I think another small moment here, which may be in the acting, maybe in the directing. I don't think it's in the script, but... As she's kind of leaning down to write the note, Marty's just kind of like watching her hair as she writes Mm -hmm. it. And there's a sense that he actually really does love her, which I think is great, particularly coming off of the moment where he just checked out two chicks. I mean, he's 17 years old. You forget that because he looks like he's 20 something. But yes, obviously. (laughs) Cut him some slack, man. (laughs) Pig. (laughs) He's just a kid. He's in love. He's conflicted. He's working through his emotions. Um, and then the kind of the last thing I clocked in this scene, pun not intended again, Nice is that Marty to leave the scene, he grabs very low onto a police car in order to hitch a ride out of the parking lot, which again, just (laughs) emphasizes that he's a bit casual when it comes to the rules of things. Yeah. So what is the next scene after he rides out with the police car? So the next scene is he's coming home. He gets home, he kicks up his skateboard, and while he's coming home, there's a tow truck that's pulling in a car. Marty looks at it, and he's like, ah, shit, I'm supposed to use this car to go up to the lake this weekend. He walks inside, he sees his dad, and we meet Crispin Glover, George McFly. We also clock the Lion Estates entrance, which becomes important. Right now, when we see it, as he's riding into his neighborhood that's just covered in graffiti, we'll find that later. And this is like, I don't want to jump ahead of your notes, but like the next couple moments are like the most important moments in the first act. Why do you think that? Go go for it. Jump in. Well, because we get to see little weak George McFly. 
we get to see Biff Tannen boss around and bully the entire house. I actually think Thomas Wilson is like this amazing actor slash Biff Tannen because the way he treats Marty is different the way than the way he treats George. Like he has not yet uh, asserted his dominance over Marty yet, mm-hmm. but he's, he gets on George about, wow, well, you only have a light beer in here. So, you know, Biff's fucking drinking and driving on the way home or walking home wherever he's going. And then on the way out, Biff is like, you know, say hi to your mom for me. And I think that's like the greatest line ever, obviously, that gets set up a little bit later. So, mm-hmm. and then we see Marty's like, dad, what the hell? You didn't stand up for yourself. And George is like, I just can't do it. <laughs> that's such a good impression. <laughs> <laughs> also, are you drinking straight tequila right now? Straight Casamigos? No. Uh, no, it's uh, Casamigos with LaCroix, okay. which which <laughs> I told you I wasn't going to drink anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's great. What flavor? Lime. Oh, good good call. The fact that you just asked me that kind of worries me about That's where true. I'm at in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I feel great. Um, yes, I love this scene as well. I just It's just so good. And I think... The way information is conveyed is so well done. Like you said, like you say, you get so much information about how Biff's relationship with his dad is different than it is with Marty. Yeah. And you also even get like the fact that he Biff was drunk driving in a reveal where you just know that he crashed the car and he's giving uh, George McFly guff about it being his fault, even though obviously he was driving. And then he says, who's going to pay for this? I spilled beer all over my suit when that car rammed into me. And that itself is just like, it's in embedded in character. And it's also yep. information that really helps us uh, place what's going on in the scene. So it's just this really great, not on the nose way of saying he was drinking and driving. And then there's yeah. this really great moment where, well, one, you clock the like, hello, McFly. Think McFly, think. You you like get get that little bit, which comes back later. Um, and then you, you this cool moment where Biff steps aside to get candy from a bowl. And he yeah. has this small aside moment where he just kind of smirks at Marty. And it's interesting. Like, why do you think they chose to focus on that? I think personally, it's that it's a great character moment of him biff being like your dad's a little bitch he's my little bitch but it's an amazing moment like from as an i I don't know if it's written in the script or not but from a biff point of view and an actor point of view it's just great it is yeah it does exactly that it it just makes biff a little bit smarter and a little bit more complex than yeah seems in that moment right where he like he knows exactly what he's doing it does make him more complex He's one step, two steps ahead of everyone. Yeah. And Biff. Is, <laughs> and then, are we ever going to see like the way Cobra Kai made, um, or Johnny. the way Cobra Kai came out with Johnny as the good guy? Are we ever going to see a Back oh. to the Future with Biff as the protagonist? Oh my gosh. Did you just pitch a new Netflix show? Because, yes. yeah, it's called, it's called Tannen. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so good. And this may be me overanalyzing things, but since Never. you've also seen the movie a million times, there's an interesting moment that I always liked where 
Biff takes the beer from the fridge. He complains that it's a light beer. And as he steps away, Marty is kind of like in the hallway, almost in front. He's not like confronting Biff, but he's kind of in the hallway blocking Biff a little bit. And there's an interesting moment where it's kind of unclear what Biff is feeling. Like there's almost a sense like Biff feels like, oh, I've been caught. Like Marty's going to stand up to me. And then he gets over that and he's a dick to Marty in his face where he's, you know, he's, he calls his uh, Marty a butthead and then say hi to your mom. Yeah, amazing. I'm not overanalyzing that moment, right? Like that's kind of what how it's played. Yeah, no, that's exactly what it is. It's great. I think this moment does such a great job of just kind of conveying like history between people and like Marty doesn't know that history. Mm-hmm. There's something about, I don't know how it's done. I, I think it's through character and obviously just, no, so obviously it's through character but and also through the acting, but like there's that general feeling that George and Biff have a huge backstory. Yeah, they have history. It's clear that they have history. And there's also a sense, too, that I think is cluing the audience in a little bit, whether they realize it or not, probably through just a feeling, that the the antics between Biff and George here are like a, a bully in high school getting the nerd in school to cheat for him or like yeah. to do his homework for him. But this is a work setting. So obviously that's different, but it definitely takes the feel of that kind of high school antics, which really helps us um, A, see what their relationship might've been like when they were in, in high school and then easily transitions us into what it is in act two. Yeah. So that it ha- things haven't changed. Act two, shout out to the act two yeah. uh, network. <laughs> um, and then after that, equally as important, this is still part of like the most important sequence I feel like in the movie is now we finally meet Lorraine. We meet Marty's brother and sister and uh, we see the family dynamic and where Lorraine and George are currently in their marriage. Mm-hmm. And there's a small moment that about their uncle who doesn't get out of jail yet mm-hmm. that only is paid off once later on in the movie, but it's like such a great joke. Yeah. Uncle Jailbird Joey. So good. Yeah, I love this scene. It You come into it, again, from a character point of view. So they're not trying to hit you over the head with setups. Where you come into it with, the, with George kind of shitting on Marty wanting to play at the, at the dance. Like, he, he kind of mm-hmm. is like, you know, that's such a headache anyways, playing at the dance. Don't worry about it. It's not a lost opportunity. No big deal. Um, and the brother, the older brother is also kind of on board. You kind of see that the brother and dad are kind of dorks, right? Yeah. Like their laugh is just off. They're watching an old television show that nobody else seems to care about. They're not totally present in the family. And then when you yep. meet Lorraine, how do you feel about that intro of Lorraine, by the way? I love it. I love the intro of Lorraine. I actually find this to be incredible because... In my opinion, my expert uh, Back to the Future opinion, uh, Lorraine, this is it. This is the all we see of her before we actually see her back in 1955. That's how important this is. And of course, we heard about her when Marty said, oh, my mom's like a nun. But I just feel like this scene does so much work for Lorraine. Yeah. The but, first the first time we meet her, oh, but. I, I was going to say from your question, I feel like you feel otherwise. No, I actually really like this scene also. I think it does a lot of work in a short amount of time where yeah. she's clearly drinking when she mm-hmm. when she when <laughs> she's in the kitchen coming to the table, which is when we first meet her. She also has a drink in her hand. She does not look happy. And mm-hmm. she just dumps this cake on the table. 
and talks about, yeah, Uncle Joey didn't make parole again. And there's some like back and forth about, oh, your your stupid brother, Uncle Joey. And she says, there's this interesting moment where she says, we all make mistakes in life, children. And she says uh-huh. this looking up at George. <laughs> yeah. And the camera does not reverse to show us that she's looking at George. We just know that she's looking at George. <laughs> It's amazing. Um, it's interesting because it because you don't reverse there, it just makes it very subtle but very <laughs> pointed. Um, yeah. And there's also a sense that the family itself, not, besides just not being close, they're just not successful people, right? The older brother is a lot older, and he still works at a fast food place. Mom makes him give her a kiss before going off, and then the sister flags that, "Hey, like Jennifer called you twice." And that's when mom gets to start piping in. That's the transition to a lot of the backstory that becomes important in act two is now mom gets to comment on how she feels about Jennifer, which leads her into talking about her own life, how she never called boys when she is a kid. And um, she she says specifically, I never sat in a parked car with a boy. Yep. It's amazing. Comes back later. I had written something with a father and a daughter. It's called Father Daughter Day. And I remember my John, my manager and I were talking about how parents have lives before their kids, and that's a really hard concept for kids to really wrap their head around. And I feel like this pertains or this ties into Lorraine right here because well, not only do we not care about our parents' past, but Lorraine has revisionist history about who she used to be. It's more like her she's a projection of the way she thinks it should be. Mhm. Anyway, I know I'm getting a little d- deep into that, but it's perfect setup for her character moving into act two. It's perfect. It's so realistic. One day, Amelia's going to be like, Dad, I heard you drinking Casamigos talking about Back to the Future in a podcast. I dug up really old <laughs> podcast tapes. <laughs> Something called an iPhone? I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so mom's Lorraine starts talking about she just kind of drifts off in this romantic story about grandpa hitting hitting George with a car and what she says specifically here which I think is very important is she says if grandpa hadn't hit him then none of you would have been born which is kind of not really a throwaway line but it's not really focused on either but this line alone sets up all of the stakes that we get later on that since Marty was the one hit with the car in act two and not George None of them are going to be born, including Marty, and therefore our adventure takes place, which is all set up in this beautiful line. It's amazing. It's so amazing. And it's even more amazing where I'm sure you're going to get to this, but George's reaction to Lorraine saying, you know, it's like, what were you doing? He's like, bird watching. (laughs) He's like like caught. He's like, ah. Again, it's just like it, another thing of like how no line is wasted. There's no fat right. in the dialogue at all because even that am- oh, God. pays off. So great. So then, yeah, mom fills up on her cheap vodka. She continues to tell the story about how she fell in love with George. And sister pipes in to help make it more natural. Is like, yeah, you told us this story a million times, mom. It's so gross. You felt sorry for him. So you took him to the fish under the sea dance. It's like, no, no. Yeah. Enchantment under the sea dance. So we, yep. we hit the nail on the head there. And she talks about how it was our first date. And it was the night of that terrible thunderstorm. Do you remember, George? <laughs> Fucking perfect. <laughs> yeah. But again, a throwaway line. 
She also mentions here that your father kissed me for the first time on that dance floor. And it was then that I realized I wanted to spend the rest of my life with him, which keys Marty in later to how important it is that he and his mom have a first kiss out on the dance floor because that's what secures them getting married. Again, just all told in like a romantic character story <laughs> that you don't really flag until you have to in act two. Because as she's telling it, she's kind of, you know, daydreaming about back in the day. And and you're absolutely right. It's all about kind of like, oh, this, it was romantic back then. And that's who George used to be. And now here we are. Mm -hmm. So after you kind of set up that story and kind of the vague feeling that this family sort of sucks, uh, it cuts to a clock and it's 1228 AM. So again, you're kind yeah. of also hitting on that clock time theme because you're cutting right to a clock. And you yeah. pan down to find Marty is sleeping and he gets a phone call from Doc that it's like, why you fell asleep? Like, go get my video camera. It's super important. Meet me at the mall. Is this our inciting incident? I guess meeting him at the mall is the inciting incident. Yeah, that's what I think, too. I, I feel like there's room for debate, but. Well, it's interesting. It's a slightly fluid inciting incident because, yeah, it's set yeah. up earlier, but you you got to go to the mall. That's the inciting incident. And it goes so fast. That's how great this movie is. It like you're just flying through this and you don't even realize that you're, you're like 25 minutes into the movie at this point. Mm -hmm. So good. Um, right. So he gets the call. He sleeps in his clothes, by the way. Doesn't doesn't bother changing. No. He's just going to wear this for the entire movie. <laughs> and he gets the call. He's out. He's going after Doc Brown. He rides at the mall with the video camera. He sees Doc Brown's van, no Doc Brown. He sees Einstein, the dog. Kind of is a mysterious shot, which is pretty interesting. It's sort of our first sign that something weird is going on. I think Einstein's just kind of staring at nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, Marty gets down there. He's like, where's Doc? And then the van opens and there's smoke for some reason. I don't know why, yeah. <laughs> but there's smoke. Who knows? <laughs> and it's this kind of epic reveal so Doc <laughs> exits the car and he's like, ta-da, welcome to my latest experiment, roll tape. And now Boom. we're in exposition phase that does not feel like exposition. No, not even at slightly. By the way, I've been to this mall. I just want to put that out there. Are you bragging right now? I am bragging. I think it's in Puente Hills. Is that a place? Does that sound like it makes sense? It sounds like a place. Yeah. And what... Just, I know this has nothing to do with character or anything, but the attention to detail of calling it Twin Pines Mall is just brilliant because later it becomes Lone Pines Mall or Lone Pine Mall. Oh, shit. I mean, this is just so great because the intro here of Doc Brown, we've been building to this person. We hear his voice only, and he's kind of like, we get to, we see his place, and he's like this eccentric crazy man who has all these clocks and you're like who the fuck is this person and then we finally meet him and when we first meet him and we've heard strickland be like get away from that guy he's terrible yeah and so now and it's yeah. just such a great intro to doc brown who's kind of like kramer by the way but it's such <laughs> a, a <laughs> such an intro to doc brown and that he, when he delivers all of this really kind of boring information he makes it sound so exciting so he he kind of just jumps in. And I think this whole section, everyone should study for the way that information is parceled out, where mm -hmm. Doc just kind of immediately is like, roll tape. 
they strap on, he straps Einstein into the car. He compares their clocks and then he uses a remote control to drive the DeLorean. And you see that he's kind of reckless. It makes Marty a bit nervous. And he like forces Marty to stay next to him in the line of the car. And he, all the information he gives at this point is, if my calculations are correct, when this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. Yeah. And then he revs the car and that's, that's kind of, that's it. And then the rest of it is the audience experiencing what the fuck is going on with Marty. We don't get, yeah. we don't get a lot of information. Oh, I've, I've just built a time machine and look, I'm going to practice to make it work. You don't get that. You get to live the experience in real time. So back to the future is such a magical movie, but there's not like a lot of fantastical moments in back to the future. It's only the two time machine moments. It feels bigger than that for some reason. It's just these two moments, but it feels like this is like this magical adventure. You're right. It's genius. <laughs> All right. So he's like, you're going to see some shit. You're see he some puts Ein in the shit. front seat. Einie's in the front seat. He forces Marty to stay with him in a moment that's actually pretty funny. Um, and then he drives the car right at them and the car just disappears right before it hits them. And this fire just blows between their legs. And I feel like that image is kind of how you feel watching that moment. It's like, holy shit, what yeah. just happened? Please now explain that to me. It's like an incredible decision for Doc Brown to not be a hundred percent sure there's going to be time travel, but just stand in front of a car that's coming at him at 80 miles per hour. Because there's definitely a sense of like, oh, I'm glad that worked. Like he just uh, yeah. put the 17-year-old kid in danger. <laughs> yeah, and shot his dog back somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then Marty's freaking out. Oh my God, you disintegrated Einstein, which this is kind of copy-pasted from the original script. The first mm -hmm. time that Marty sees Doc uh, zap someone in time, which by the way, to like shift over to that script and what's going on in the original script at this point for a second. Uh, the reason why Doc Brown figures out the solution to time travel and because his problem was I don't have enough power to do it. The way he figures out how to do it is Marty drops some Coca-Cola on one of his experiments and it sparks and like creates all this power. And Doc's yeah. like, oh my God, what is that? And Marty makes a joke about how Coca-Cola is the most guarded secret recipe of all time. Like nobody knows what it is. And that's a really cheap, shitty way of solving time travel um sorry bob and bob yeah i i, I agree <laughs> i feel like there has to be but what's really interesting about this in the current uh, in the in the movie is that there is they just take out that coca-cola moment and we just assume that doc brown has figured it out and obviously he hits his head and has this vision you know he talks about this vision he had back in 1955 and that's cool that like they were smart enough to take that out. Like we don't need to see how time travel is made. It can already exist. Mm -hmm. And Doc Brown has already done it. Mm -hmm. They're just jumping into it. Yeah. I think that's a great note because it, it's honestly not as interesting to see how the sausage is made than it is to just see that he's done it and to have to, mm -hmm. as I said, like live in real time this experiment. So yeah, I think it was a really great choice to move the movie up a little bit. Yeah. So this is when Doc delivers his great line where Marty says, where, where the hell are they? Meaning the car and Einstein. And Doc says the appropriate question is, when the hell are they? Right. And we get just some, some rapid fire explanations that 
Einstein's just become the first time traveler. He's one minute into the future. Uh, he talks about how they'll catch up with him in a minute. And Marty gets kind of a moment to just register what's going on. And we're kind of with, we're with Marty in this scene. We're, we're like, wait, 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 slow down. Like, Doc, what are you what are you trying to tell me? Like, that's how I'm feeling as an audience member. It's also where Marty is at the same time. And so yeah. using Marty as the audience's point of view in that scene, I think is really, really smart. Absolutely. And would also like going back to having everything being very important to in the second act, all set up, set up, set up, nothing is missed is now Marty is recording all of this. He has this all on tape and it's like future doc is going to tell younger doc how to create time travel. What I also like here is there is a comment from Marty like, wait, you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Because obviously yeah. that's kind of ridiculous. It's in the same line as being as ridiculous as the amp. Um, <laughs> and which I say only, I bring up again, only because I feel like those notes or the reasons that they exist are similar where it just makes the movie cooler just makes it a bit more fun like that ridiculous yeah. amp is more fun it being a delorean and he even said doc even says it here is like if you're going to build a time machine out of a car why not do it with some style and the reason why this feels very deliberate on their part is because in the original draft it's like the time machine is just in a room it's in a storage room and yeah. there's no flash like i don't even remember what it's described as it's very unmemorable it's not cool it's not flashy it's not fun no, and this it, draft this movie is very very fun and this is one reason why it's fun i completely agree <laughs> i think too it means that you can get away with some of this kind of sillier bullshit if your characters really believe it like when he says if you're gonna build a time machine out of a car why not do it with some style you're like yeah i mean that makes sense all right yeah that's all. That's the only explanation you need for this ridiculous time machine. It's really amazing how much you can get away with when you focus on character. Yeah. <laughs> I think too, let's talk about Doc and Marty in this scene, because I think it's also fun how Doc kind of looks totally scared and surprised, but also excited by this process. And I think him not being a hundred percent sure of what the hell's going on on and what's yeah. about to happen actually makes the scene more exciting that the character yeah. who created time travel isn't completely in control which is pretty scary and interesting and just makes it more lively i agree and also in this scene doesn't doc he tells marty like you've been a great friend i'll see you i'll see you later mm -hmm. and it's really crazy to think that this is sort of the end of their friendship because Doc's about to embark on his own adventure. Mm -hmm. And I've always found that really interesting how like this entire relationship was going to come to an end at this exact moment. Well, theoretically, he could come back whenever he wanted and hang out with Marty again. That's true. That's very true. But yeah, I, this movie does such a great job of um, having like getting the most out of one scene with mm -hmm. one person or with one character, I mean. They do actually play it out to emotion where... Doc is saying his goodbyes, right? And he's and Marty says, and it's a very like dramatic moment in the midst of this craziness where Marty's like, hey, Doc, like, look me up in 25 yeah. years. He's like, I will, buddy. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I will, buddy. Yeah, I agree. But then, Tasha, shit hits the fan. Real fast. You know why? What happens? 
because Doc Brown stole some fucking plutonium from some Libyans, or he shorted them or something. And now the Libyans have found Doc Brown, and they're coming after him through the parking lot of the Twin Pines Mall. Mm-hmm. Wait, before that happens, though, you did jump ahead because there's another oh, yeah. huge setup in this expositional scene where he's, like, typing in all these random dates of all the cool shit that he's Oh, God, yeah. Eat. And of then course. Like, this, huge di- this huge date in the history of science, November 5th, 1955. And it's the last date that he leaves like lingering on the board. And his excitement turns into a memory. And he just starts kind of like Lorraine was doing back in the dinner scene, just kind of remembering this moment where he figured mm-hmm. out time travel by slipping off his toilet, as you said. And this is where we get the final explanation of the flux capacitor. Like I created the flux capacitor after I woke up from hitting my head. So obviously it's a little coincidental that the time that he, or the during the time he created time travel and a flux capacitor coincides with the time of the enchantment under the sea dance. Right? Yes. Okay. Do you think in a current version of this script someone would flag that and say like there needs to be some kind of correlation between Marty and the parents? I mean, excuse me, between Doc and the parents or there needs to be some kind of connective tissue for all of this to exist like within the same couple days. Well, the interesting thing is that it's never occurred to me that it's a problem just because I buy it in the movie. And it's not like on the day of the dance, obviously, that there's some time and space there. Yeah, it's never bothered me. It's never bothered me either until I... But I can really 100% see like a studio note coming back and being like, this feels all too coincidental. Yeah, which is really interesting because we're talking about how seamless the setup is and how there are setups and payoffs, but now there's like these glaring coincidences that have happened in Back to the Future. But is this the only coincidence? Well, yeah, but I think it's a pretty big... It's a pretty big coincidence. But I wonder if you could, if everything else is stronger and so strong in the movie, if you can just be like, yeah, that's the one, bye. Sure. Because you don't want to complicate the, the movie by saying, oh, he goes to November 5th, 1955, and then has to jump to another time to visit his parents. And then, like, you don't want to co- create complications. It's so much simpler to have it take place within a few days of each other. Yeah. Ab- no, of course. Man, the, th- the thing that's running through my head now is, like, <laughs> if I had written this script and I got the note that it's too coincidental and I changed it, I would have been messing with genius. Because I would have I changed Back to the Future. So I would have had to have the wherewithal to challenge that note and be confident that, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to buy into that one thing and I will make it all worth it. Yeah. Oh, this is simpler. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so Doc reminisces. He says, back on you know October 21st, 1955 is when time travel was created. I bumped my head, created the flux capacitor yada 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 marty's listening he's filming and he's about to take off him and Ainie are just about to set off into the world yeah here's also where he makes his comment about how man i remember when all of this was farmland as far as the eye mm-hmm. can see old man peabody owned this he had this crazy idea of breeding pine trees which is played as a joke but we've obviously seen it's the twin pines mall and this is the moment so it's after all this explanation that Marty's like, does this thing run on gasoline? 
and we get no it runs on plutonium and then we get a whole Boom. like what the fuck and then they actually put plutonium in this is what puts marty in his crazy looking space suit that ends up freaking mm -hmm. people out later because he has to handle plutonium and they do they do the whole dramatic moment and doc's about to go into the car and he's like oh shit what was i thinking I almost forgot to bring an extra plutonium. How do I expect to get back? Because you have right. one pellet, one trip. Which is, again, setting up the rules, but it's embedded in a character being like, oh, shit, I've, I'm so crazy. I forgot about my other pellet. It's not like, if you only <laughs> you only have one pellet, Marty, and that's it. You know, it's not that version of the scene. <laughs> I feel like you almost went full Doc Brown. You pulled back a little and then you you were you were almost there, but that was a good Doc Brown. <laughs> and then the way we get the Libyans is you see Einstein start barking. Van pulls up. Doc walks to the camera and he says, Oh my god, they found me. Run for mm -hmm. it. It's like, who? Oh, the Libyans. <laughs> Just the Libyans. Can I tell you the can I tell you the shitty version of this movie? Go on. I just, I, I never really thought about this, but I feel like there's a shitty version of this movie where, or maybe this is a fucking awesome version of this movie, but Marty goes back in time and the Libyans somehow get like looped into his little time travel. And then like the Libyans are hunting him back in 1955. That's very much the Josh action version of Back to the Future. I'm glad I started that as the shitty version of this. <laughs> and then that turned into- no, you said the awesome action. version. You said the awesome version. <laughs> And they, yeah, no, in this one, the Libyans would be like George and Lorraine hunting <laughs> Doc Brown. <laughs> anyway, yeah, the Libyans come in. Two things here that I think are cool. One mm -hmm. is that Doc runs off and says, I'll draw their fire. So he's like trying yes. to protect Marty. And there's something very sweet to that moment. And there's also this great setup that forces Marty into the car. So it's not yes. like an obvious Marty's going to get into the car and go time travel to escape these guys. That's not it. That's actually never Marty's intention at all. In fact, he tries to run away, but he gets cornered by the Libyans so that he has no other option but to climb into the car. So that's like the last choice he has, which I think is very yeah. cool. And I love it. I love the... Um that the Libyans gun jam the Libyans gun jams and something happens and Marty just nearly dies. He mm -hmm. faces it and he just yeah, he has no choice. He oh yeah, they the actually car. shoot him, but the gun jams. So he could be dead at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, the movie could have ended right there if we're not that small <laughs> moment. <laughs> and then it's a movie about the Libyans returning yeah. uh plutonium to whoever they want to sell it to. <laughs> the Libyans are now time traveling. Yeah. Could, could have been. Uh, so yeah, he he jumps into the car. He unwittingly kind of turns it on. So he's he's actually just driving the car and then shifts into gear, and that's what turns the time travel part of it on. And right. then he keeps what I what I love about this scene too is he keeps almost hitting eighty eight miles per hour, but because they're in a mall parking lot, there's a lot of turns, and so he he then turns and then the car slows down, and then it keeps building on itself where the Libyans are now pulling out a bazooka. And Marty, mm -hmm. again, is forced into a new choice. He has no other option. He has to gun it as fast as he can or he is going to die. And that's when he hits 88 miles an hour. So, again, it's forcing our characters into these choices rather than right. them just obviously coming to these conclusions themselves. 
Yeah, I actually think that's a really, really interesting point. We talk about this a lot, actually, because you and I write a lot of action, and we're always talking about how do you make these action scenes more interesting and more suspenseful. And Mm -hmm. you and I have always held up Mission Impossible as a model where something always goes wrong that forces Tom Cruise to have to adjust and do something else. And that continues to happen within the course of the same scene. And this is another example of that, of a, a very good example of it, I think. And it's, yeah, for some I agree. reason, as much as we're aware of it, you and I, it's really hard to execute. <laughs> and I think it's just because in our head, we know where our characters need to go. And it's harder to sort of reverse engineer problems if you know where they have to go, because you're just so in a rush to get them there as a writer. Yeah, I think, and we've talked about this um my guy J.J. Abrams, he, I think, does a really good job of always complicating action scenes. This is kind of what happens here to Marty is like there's one obstacle after another, after another where, you know, he could have driven out of the parking lot. He could have, you know, something could have happened. But I don't know. I hope some of that made sense. I kind of drifted off there. No, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. It's just making it more and more difficult for the character. And yeah. the fact that time travel does not occur to Marty as an option, mm-hmm. I think is very cool because that just puts your character again, slightly behind the ball, um, which is just more fun to watch, I think. So I end of act one is, is like 31 minutes in where Marty hits that 88 miles an hour. He's about to run into a kiosk in the parking lot. And instead he's, he's suddenly in a field and he hits a scarecrow, which we've already yeah, set up. Because we know what's happened because Doc has already said, I remember when this was all just open fields. So yeah. we know what he's done and where he is. So that's the end of Act One, everyone. And what an Act One that is. It is so <laughs> damn packed and yet so fluid. It's just it's a masterclass in Act One. It is. It's amazing. I feel like even though this was a little bit of on the longer side of our podcast. I feel like this flew by, personally speaking. Just because we enjoy talking about it so much? <laughs> Probably. But no, it is. It's a masterclass of an act one. Anyone who's ever wanted to write anything should watch the first act of Back to the Future. Yeah, just break it down. Literally, what, what I did was I just wrote like, every moment down. And mm-hmm. it really, just seeing it on paper really helps you wrap your mind around kind of how genius it is and just helps you uh sort of take it apart from a mechanical level yeah waste no moments and have everything rooted in character it's so hard they make it seem so effortless but it took them four years to get that script and who knows how long it took them to write the first draft that's very true i want to just say one last thing about the first draft yeah we won't we don't have to dive into this because we've gone so far but you know in the first draft in the first act it seems edgier and i can see why an actor like Eric Stoltz, who was going to be the original Marty Mc, or who was going to be Marty McFly, or who was Marty McFly prior to uh, Michael J. Fox, I can just I can wrap my head around that decision, I guess. And you know what's interesting though is the reason why they fired him was because they felt he was playing the role too seriously. So I right. wonder if yeah, you're right. Like Bob Zemeckis remembered that first draft and what his intentions were with that first draft of making it a bit more dramatic. And then once it started playing out, he was like, oh, wait, this is not going to work. It really does have to yeah. be more fun. Just interesting. I love this movie. It's so good. Yeah, we did it. All right. 
Well, per usual, everyone, you can find us at act2writers at gmail.com or on our Instagram at act2writers. And I have a very appropriate quote of the day today. If you have a problem with the third act, the real problem is the first act by Billy Wilder. Wow. And if you liked anything you just heard, please rate us. Write a quick note in the comment section. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Beg, which you can find on Spotify.